Welcome to this week's episode of Horror Weekly, the best horror movies of the 2010s. We asked half a million horror fans online to rank their favorite or best choices for horror in the decade previous to this one, and we're here with their answers and ours. This list ended up being really fascinating and kind of surprising. We've got remakes, we've got sequels, we've got horror comedies, we've got horror westerns. We've even got a movie that I feel like I remember everyone hated when it came out. So join us as we go through the votes and find out how good the 2010s were for open-minded horror fans. Okay, so let's go through the community's voting first. Pretty far back in the pack, but with enough votes to make the list, was Insidious. With a f- sprinkle of votes for Insidious, too. Aaron Kleber said in a comment on his vote, um, he called Insidious 1 and 2 the back to the future of horror movies. Just ahead of Insidious were a lot of... Really, I don't know. Some of these were surprising movies to me in kind of like a dead tie all with each other with like low hundreds of votes. So we had Bone Tomahawk, Scream 4, amazing to see Scream touching into yet another decade of horror. Wolfman 2010, the Anthony Hopkins, Benicio Del Toro uh, movie, which... I, I feel like when that movie came out, all I heard about it was disappointment. And now we hear, uh, here we are all these years later. We did a post on the Horror Weekly Facebook page ta- talking about the ill-fated launch of the Dark Universe um, and how that never really panned out. And now we have these sort of movies that would have been in the Dark Universe like The Wolfman or The Invisible Man with Elizabeth Moss that clearly are not part of some kind of interconnected universe but are growing in horror fans' estimation or at least in our community over time. So it feels like they might have bailed on that idea a little too soon. After that, we have Terrifier. And there is no way Terrifier would have been on this list if I had asked this question two years ago. The mentions for that movie have been off the charts for the last two years, probably because it's really become a franchise now. And the first one, in my opinion, was better than the second one. So glad to see it here. Ahead of that was What We Do in the Shadows, which was amazing to me. I love when horror comedies make it relatively high up in the voting because I just never expect it. And then above that, in what to me was the biggest surprise of all the voting, was Halloween 2018. Just from having lived through the Halloween Ends Wars um, of late, I kind of thought everyone was sick of the Halloween franchise, and it it wasn't going to make a mention here, especially one of the movies from the new trilogy. But it got a ton of votes and some really smart advocacy in the comments with the votes. 
Kind of shocked to see it make the list. All right, now let's get to the big ones. All of these got 300 votes or more. First is Mandy, which was great to see on the list. Right above that was Get Out, naturally. Above that was Train to Busan. Actually tied with Busan was It Follows. Then we have The Witch. And now we're at our top three. So in third place of the community voting for best horror movie of the 2010s is Hereditary. Now, if you follow this podcast regularly, you'll remember that, or maybe you'll remember that uh, we had predicted that there would be kind of a backlash against Hereditary that would grow over time. And it, I kind of expected Hereditary to come in first or second. The fact that it came in third is already sort of a sign to me, but of the top three, it was the only one that got a ton of resistance. So even though it got almost the most votes, there were also a lot of comments against it. People saying it was boring or people saying it was overrated or people saying they hated it. So perhaps the backlash begins. In second place, we had Scott Derrickson's Sinister. Now, this is interesting to me because I saw a lot of backlash to Black Phone, but there was no backlash to Sinister in these comments. It got a ton of votes. It got a lot of people saying it was the scariest thing they had seen recently or that it traumatized them or marked them in some way. I have to admit the don't worry, daddy, I'll make you famous again line is one of my favorite horror movie lines from the 2010s. But the winner, the movie with the vote, most votes, which I think surprised me initially, but then as I watched the votes rise and rise and rise, I realized I should have just known this all along, is Cabin in the Woods, which just goes to show you, if you stuff your horror movie full of horror icons, or at least reflections of horror icons, you're going to please a lot of fans, clearly. And it's also interesting to me that there are only three meta movies in the voting, really, right? So What We Do in the Shadows, Scream 4, and then Cabin in the Woods at the top. And it makes me wonder if, like, the fate of movies like Final Girls, which is a flawed film but has some excellent sequences, the slow-mo uh, killing killer jumping out of the window on fire moment, is magnificent. And the killer in Final Girls is pretty legit. They did a really good job with the mythology and the design. But aside from the fact that we're inevitably heading towards Scream 50, Tokyo Drift or whatever, um, meta may be receding. I mean, the metaverse is certainly receding. Amazing that Facebook rebranded as Meta and now is putting all of its money in AI because and horror fans, I guess, should have embraced the metaverse. I mean, there's a bunch of pre-dismembered people in there with no legs. But being horror fans, we prefer the AI created people that all have 12 fingers. so You can just do a lot of chopping. All right. Now let's break down our picks. And I've only got four for you here. Wanted to go with ones that hadn't been chosen or voted on by the community in any great size. 
So first we're going to go with the 2010 remake of Let the Right One In, directed by Matt Reeves and starring Cody Smith-Key, McPhee, sorry, Chloe uh, Moretz, Elias Codius, and Richard Jenkins. Now, first of all, I see a lot of talk in the horror communities about Mike Flanagan, and rightfully so. He's made a lot of great movies and series. He's got a real eye. He's great with characterization and writing. Um, But Matt Reeves, now, granted, a couple of these movies here are not quote-unquote horror for sure, but just career-wise, first of all, to go from Felicity to what came after is mind-boggling, but... This this guy let me so we'll get to let me in in a second. Cloverfield and then two of the Planet of the Apes movies, Dawn and War, and then 22's The Batman. Now, the Apes movies are to my mind one of the greatest um modern franchises. Just endlessly rewatchable incredibly executed and very, very dark. I don't see much talk about them anymore, which is a shame because they are magnificent, nearly perfect to me. Now, Let Me In does something that should be impossible. It takes a perfect movie, probably the best horror movie of the 2000s, and does a remake That is, don't get mad at me here, just as good. Look, I know that Let the Right One In is a masterpiece. I love the movie. I love the novel it's based on. But Let Me In is so goddamn good. And it just shouldn't be possible. It'd be like remaking The Exorcist as good as The Exorcist. I've said this before on this podcast, but one of the things I used to judge for myself uh, how I feel about a horror movie and how good it was is its memorability, right? Like, I haven't seen Let Me In in years. I purposefully did not rewatch it for this podcast. I just tried to surprise myself. I thought back and I was like, what do you remember of this movie? And I swear, I feel like... If every print and version of Let Me In vanished from the universe, if you could like stick electrodes onto my head or scan my brain, you might be able to recreate this entire film from my memory. Everything came back. The opening scenes, the quiet dialogue scenes, the hospital flame scenes, the pool scene. Even as I was remembering the movie, the whole sequence of Richard Jenkins hiding in the car and then getting caught hiding in the car and trying to kill the teenagers and going off the cliff and pouring acid on his face. I remember like, like I'm it's like, even as I'm talking about it now, it's like watching the film unroll in front of my eyes. I think Chloe, uh, or sorry, Abby, um, is good enough as a character, not as good as the original, but close enough. But Owen is just as good. There are really cool shots, especially in the pool scene near the end of the movie, when he just emerges from the pool after the massacre and the camera goes in on his face. And you can see that his he cycles through a bunch of emotions without barely moving his face. It's filmed 
beautifully. And you can tell that he's grown up. Like it was like a baptism scene. And when he went underwater, he was a kid. And when he came out, he was an adult or at least a very old soul all of a sudden. The tunnel attack scene when Abby gets desperate for blood is absolutely chilling. The scene that preceded that with the killing of uh, Thomas trying to kill it, kill actually succeeding, clearly succeeding, killing a teenager, draining the blood, spilling all the blood. Um, just that visual of being hung upside down just in nature, like turning all of nature into a slaughterhouse, hanging like a slab of meat. It's so unnatural and twisted. And the fact that Let Me In was smart enough to keep one of the touches I thought that made the original truly great, which is the end scene where Owen and Abby are off on the train. Abby's in a trunk. They're communicating via Morse code, which is just a spectacular touch. But the fact that it's filmed like Owen, who's clearly taking Thomas's place and might be heading towards Thomas's fate eventually, unfortunately. But the fact that he looks like a little businessman, like this little guy who's commuting to work, who's like Tom Hanks from Big or something, is just remarkable because they're both still quote unquote children, but they have completely left childish things behind. And there's good and a lot of bad to that. Just a remarkable, visually stunning remake. Love it. Okay, my third place pick is Jeremy Salyanet's 2015 masterpiece, Green Room. Now, most of you probably know at this point because I've talked about it too much, which is why I'm purposely avoiding it in this episode of my affection for the movie The Witch. And I often talk about how I think The Witch is my favorite at least if not the best horror movie of the decade at hand. But in my heart of hearts, I feel like Green Room is just as well made. It's the circumstances that I saw the witch in that made my heart bend towards it. But Green Room is appropriately for the color in its title a movie that makes me envious. Like I have no ambitions to be a filmmaker of any kind, never have. But if I wanted a movie on my resume, this might be the movie I steal. This is clearly a film with multiple messages, but they're not in your face. And at its beating heart, there is a notion of order versus chaos. The punk band in the movie, literally named The Ain't Rights, perfect, live a truly chaotic lifestyle, always on the edge of the whole band being snuffed out financially or energetically, never really knowing where they're going to be staying or where they're going to be headed next. And in the spirit of Let Me In, there's a childishness to that. There's a glory in that, but there's also like a little bit of play acting in that. And we get a great example of that when they kick off their set in the white supremacy bar with um, not, punk Nazis fuck off uh, cover song to start the set enraging the crowd. And amazingly, that's not the thing that's going to get them in trouble with the group. I mean, 
I remember when I first watched this movie, I thought, oh, here we go. That's what's going to kick off the suspense and the tension. But it's not. They they discover a murder in the green room. And um, that's why everything else kind of unfolds from there. The rest of their set actually impresses the crowd. There's a truly blood curdling moment when um, the murderer, the first murderer in the movie um, is talking to the band and he in the in, totally inappropriately at a moment where this question should not be asked. He asked them, what was the second to last song of your set? What was its name? And they're like standing around being held hostage in a, like this terrible situation. And, and they're just like the uh, miss him. Anton Yelchin is looking at the murderer going, what? <laughs> Why are you asking this now? And he goes, no, what was the name? And he sputters out something like I think it's toxic evolution or something. And the murderer leans in a little bit and goes, that was so hard. Great song, man. That's the song that was playing when I did her, referring to the corpse. And you just get the sense as it appears in all of the good characters' eyes that that feeling of swagger and nothing to lose they had actually isn't quite real. They're actually starting to realize they have something really important to lose, which is their lives. And also their code of ethics. They immediately try to call the police and alert to this crime. They don't like try to sneak out or skulk away. They're so authentically offended by the murder that they ironically immediately want to turn to the authorities, which is what they're ostensibly against. But what's really captivating here, headed up by Patrick Stewart in an incredible turn as a villain in this movie, is the order that they're confronted with. Their chaos, their like ethical chaos, I guess I'll call it, is about to run headfirst into a completely remorseless and cruel order. The entire plan that Patrick Stewart engineers to make them disappear, first to handle the problem, but then definitely to make them disappear. And he's improvising sort of every step of the way as they barricade themselves in the green room. And Patrick Stewart realizes this is going to go on longer than he wanted, and it's going to get more complex than he wanted. His updating of the plan is uncanny. It, 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 to have your brain work that way, to be that organized in evil... That doesn't come by accident. He literally, Patrick Stewart, when he clears the bar, he's the owner of the venue. Um, when he clears the bar after a faked power outage and tells all the crowd listening to the to the bands to leave, his last thing he says to them is, remember, this is a movement, not a party. And they have a strict hierarchy. They're, they have regimented nicknames for cliques inside their evil group. They have people designated that wear red laces and they're the only ones you can trust to do real violence. There's a crazy moment where Patrick Stewart's second command goes to get some money from the accountants, the fucked up accountant of this uh, Nazi enterprise. And he goes, you just took out 350 and he goes, I need 600 more. Someone's dead. And he goes, 
All right, here it is, but I still got to keep the books. Meanwhile, the band, who's barricaded in a room with a dead body and one of the Nazis, is just imp- they're just improvising a totally different way, completely by emotions or gut instincts, changing their minds all the time. First, they want to rush the door, then they don't, then they try to dig out upwards and downwards and escape, and then they give up. <laughs> then, in a great running bit for the movie, they keep getting distracted and, and, you know, trying to trade like their desert island band um, choices to each other, which is awesome because it starts all like the thing you would want to say to your other band members and friends. Like if I got to go desert island with the works of only one band, I'm picking the misfits or I'm picking the damn. But by the end of the movie, they're picking like Simon and Garfunkel and Prince and in a great turn way, we'll get to her because she's my favorite character. Uh, Amber, I think her name is. She picks, she refuses to do what? She picks Madonna and Slayer. And all the actors in this movie are great. But what really makes this movie is Patrick Stewart, Anton, and then Imogen Poots as Amber. Amber's character is remarkable. One of the greatest visuals in all of 2010's horror is the moment when, in an attempt to uh, clear the bar, the Patrick Stewart has them kill all the electricity. So imagine you're trapped in this tiny hostage room with a guy who wants to kill you and a whole bunch of people locked outside the door who want to kill you and they just can't get in. And all of a sudden the lights go out and there's this, it's sheer black. You can't see anything. And you're just hearing dialogue, like keep pointing the gun at him and no one move. And like, what's going on? And then all of a sudden a lighter flicks. And there's this tiny lighter light and Amber says, be careful. And it's the calmest, most assured, but also most she can see ahead to how the band who lives by chaos is about to be engulfed by chaos in this sudden darkness situation. And she brings order. She's the bridge between order and chaos and she's ethical but she's also controlled and she holds the lighter up and goes over to the one guy in the room that's a threat and lights a cigarette for him and then hands it to him and says you keep smoking in that then she turns to the band in dark on near darkness now and says watch his the watch the cherry if it does anything you don't like shoot him and she just instantly at a snap reestablishes order. It gives me goosebumps how good that scene is. The band is tougher than maybe even they thought they were because they managed to kill a lot of Nazis who of course turned out to be weaker and more cowardly than they all, they think they are. But the sequence near the end of the movie where there's basically three of the bad people left Um, the rest of them are up of the road because they think the situation is handled against the two Anton and, and Amber. Um, and who are at this point really wounded and definitely under resourced. They don't even have a gun. I think they have a box cutter at this point. So they're going up against these three villains who have attack dogs and guns. This action sequence in the drug lab slash bunker underneath the room they've been trapped in, actually, it's a two-level sequence. The way that plays out 
it might be my favorite action sequence since The Dark Knight. Just it's quiet. You, you got to rewatch it, I think, to to realize just how spectacular and clever and how many little fake outs the way that Imogen and Anton are communicating to each other it right in front of the the villains who are trying to chase them um they've gotten they've bonded so tightly that they can pass information to each other out loud with other people hearing and still it's just to them and the other people aren't getting enough from it to track them Again, just like the highest order filmmaking. And then after that, when they make their escape and they go, spoilers galore here, and they go to the final confrontation with the villains that are left and Patrick Stewart, and this, this moment is just incredible. It is one of the greatest deflations of a horror villain I've ever seen. This does not happen enough in horror. And when it does, it happens bad. So like in It Chapter 2, they definitely demystify Pennywise. Pennywise is much, much, much less powerful than you would suspect from his cosmic um, strength. But the way that kind of goes down, to me, you, you might have taken it differently, is visually ridiculous. But Patrick Stewart has been so evil He's been so effective. He's been so cruel. There's a moment when he, he there's someone barely alive on the ground and he's bleeding out and clearly in a lot of pain. And he tells his lieutenant, let him bleed. It's better for forensics if the time of death is late, time of death is later. And just staring down at him with no emotions. This is a pitiless horror villain. But at the end, when they confront him, he's got nothing to do and nothing to say and nowhere to go. He has no superpower. He's not Hannibal Lecter. He, it, without his organization and his lieutenants, his minions, and having to jump on people, without being in the power position, he's really nothing. So Anton looks at him and says the glorious line, it's funny, you were so much scarier at night. And that's the thing that breaks Patrick Stewart. He runs away, even though he knows they're armed, he turns his back on them, which is foolish, but he can't stand and hear the truth. He can't stand and watch his own villainous self-image get um, mocked. So he literally turns his back from the truth and runs away and gets shot. It's just glorious fashion um, by Anton and Amber. And as good as Anton's line there was, Amber actually has a better line where she says, "After oh, sorry, what happens is um, Anton looks around. Great scene. Camera's really close up on him, but there's a lot of landscape behind him somehow. It's a cool trick. And he says, this is a nightmare. And Patrick Stewart says, for us all, like, what was the nightmare for you? You're the one perpetuating the whole thing the whole time. And Amber looks at him and says, tell me those are the last fucking stupid words he's ever going to say or something like that. And they are. He doesn't say anything else after that. So she nails it and Patrick Stewart dies. And then there's a ridiculously sad and heartbreaking moment where the killer dogs who are truly killer, they're trained to chew people up, tear out their throats, just awful, awful stuff. 
um, is dragging a chain and he's been on this journey. He's mortally wounded. Um, I don't think he knows it, or maybe he does, but um, he's been given drugs to carry on with the fight. And this poor dog is like going up the road and going on this journey. And finally he gets to his um, owner or trainer who has taught him to do all these awful things. And he just goes back by all these, this dog just blows by all the bodies blows by the two people left alive um, who hold up their guns Poor, uh, poor Amber and Anton are like, you know, cocking the guns. Like what is the way they've had enough of these dogs and this dog walks right past them, no mind, goes to his dead owner and puts his head down on his owner's chest and lets out a sigh. Truly, truly sad. And there are a lot of ways to read this moment um, in terms of how to train things to do evil and how to get lost inside evil. And if you get the chance maybe to want out of it, but a lot of people just – or things just never get the chance but however you read this moment it is heartbreaking and then at the end anton who has refused to answer the desert island band um, question the entire movie all bloodied up laying next to amber looks at her and says i know my desert island band and she's like tell someone who gives a shit <laughs> just <laughs> god damn it do i love this movie now, it's been a couple weeks bef since uh, Horror Weekly has gotten any positive ratings or reviews on Spotify or Apple or wherever you listen to the podcast. And I screwed up when I launched this podcast. I'm not tech savvy. I did it with bad audio. We got some bad reviews at the beginning. Who knows? We might be getting bad reviews for now because you don't like the content. Fair enough. But um, if you do like the content uh, or you want to support this, here's what I want you to do. I want you to give a written review. Tip, please, if you can, take the time and tell me your Desert Island band. I'll trade you. I'll tell you mine. It's Throwing Muses. But I'll look to see if there's any new reviews before next week's episode, and I'll read back anybody who gave their Desert Island band in the reviews. Would love to hear it. Okay. In second position for my pick for best horror of the 2010s is The Endless. I got to tell you, I'm a big um, UFO horror fan. Like, I love Fire in the Sky and Fourth Kind and Communion and all the all the greats, right? So, um, and I love stuff like Mothman Prophecies and things that are sort of like alien entity-ish. And that's what The Endless is. And it's actually sort of related to, this is a pair of directors here who do everything on their films. They do all the cinematography and editing and writing. And it's just remarkable, but... Um, their first movie, I believe, is called Resolution, and The Endless is sort of a sister movie to that, but you don't need to have seen Resolution to appreciate The Endless. It fills in enough details. But to tell you the truth, I don't want to cheat you on this one, but it's just a movie that's kind of impossible to talk about. You have to experience it. It would be like me describing a cologne <laughs> to you or like, the best meal I ever had was a fresh seafood feast on a beach in Maine at midnight. And um, I could tell you about the colors and the smells and the sounds and all the food and the chipito and the crabs and like all the things that, that made up the moment. But if you weren't there, it's just not the same. So, um, I highly recommend if I highly recommend if you haven't seen it, just going 
to watch The Endless, you'll have your own experience with it. But there are two things that I will say about it. Um, there are people in this movie caught in time loops. Um, more accurately, or same, I guess, they're caught, uh, trapped under time domes. And they're living certain stretches of time over and over again. Some of them have 10-year blocks. Some of them have one-year blocks. Some of them have one-week blocks. And there's a person in this movie who I think has the most horrible fate I can imagine in the entire history of horror, horror cinema. Like going back to Thomas Edison's Frankenstein all the way up to now. I don't think I've ever encountered anything that terrified me as much as the fate of this one character. He's trapped in like what looks like a civil warish type tent. And he's living a three second loop of time over and over again. When we meet him, the one of the characters is looking at him through like a clear place in the tent or the or whatever that is. And this guy has a record player going and it it plays this three second bit of music. He jumps up out of his chair in fright, runs a couple steps until you barely see him. And then something awful happens to him. And then, bam, pops back into his chair again. The music resets and he does it again. And while he's living this three second loop over and over again, he looks over and sees our, our hero looking at him. And he, because he clearly is retaining a memory of this happening to him over and over again in this three second loop, he gets across a message. It takes him a couple loops to do it saying, don't stay. You can't help here. Get away before it's too late. And then he deviates his path. And instead of running off camera, he runs towards the character watching him and explodes in a, in a, in a fountain of blood and then it resets again. And it is, I don't know what it was. It made my spine cold watching this. And there's an entity in this movie, which might be like an evil God, almost like a Cthulhu type situation, but might also sort of represent us, the audience. You'll have to watch it to see for yourself. But this entity is truly unfathomable, has all these rules and ways it watches things. There's a moment where the people who live in this cult that sort of worships the entity take our characters out into the middle of the forest at night and there's a rope just hanging from the sky and the entity may or may not be holding it on the other end. You can't see. And they play tug of war <laughs> with their devil god. It's an entirely insane, like it reminds me of a cooler more calculating David Lynch. And the other thing I'll say about The Endless is what it seems like it's really about at the conclusion of the movie is the two brothers in the movie have a very specific dynamic with each other. One of them is a complete control freak, tries to take care of the other one, but really is really controlling and tyrannical with the other brother. The other brother really resents it, but like can't really break away from it because they clearly both love each other. And that dynamic is snapped by the end of the movie. You can tell visually by their body language. You can tell by the words that they're saying to each other. 
And what kind of happens here is they were in their own endless loop relationship wise. And that loop ended just like you had to break the loop to get out of the evil situation this movie puts you in. And the fact that the movie was able to do that meaningful a move without it being in your face. It's clearly way more about entertainment. And they these guys are, these directors are clearly talented. And they're in it for the great visuals and the great things they can get on screen. But the how profound it was to have something happen in a horror movie that you could actually, it could help you in your life. Like not to sound ridiculous, but this is the best self-help horror movie I've ever seen. The idea of being able to break out of some kind of endless cycle that is working against you or draining your life and existence and energy to snap that loop and get to the other side of it is just a truly valuable thing. Okay, but my choice for the best horror movie of the 2010s is 2016's The Wailing, a South Korean horror film written and directed by Na Hong Jin. I read a review of this movie. I don't remember. It was an offhand sentence in it, so I can't credit it because I don't remember who wrote it. But they said something to the effect of, this movie isn't just about evil spells. This movie might be an evil spell. It might be casting something as it goes along. And I really did feel that watching it. I did not know what fucking genre this movie was. I went into it blind. I heard good things about it, but no specifics. Didn't know what to expect. And as it went, I was like, is this a possession movie? Is this a paranormal movie? Is this like a crime, like a seven-esque serial killer crime procedural? Is this not even supernatural at all? Is someone just running a long, long con on a village of people? And it turns out all those things are correct and more. The synopsis of this movie is after a mysterious Japanese man and his dog arrive in the village. Um, it's a small village in the mountains of South Korea. A mysterious infection breaks out and causes the villagers to become deranged and violently kill their families. So we've definitely got a Regan and exorcist thing going out of this movie. Although in this case, the exorcist is a shaman and the shaman's exorcism ritual looks like so much fun. If you don't mind a lot of blood, it's like so musical and so insane. But in this case, there may or may not be a counter ritual happening from the villain of the movie and to have dueling rituals happening, uh, like two spell casters working against each other at the same time was just something I did not expect. And was, I was riveted watching it. But to me anyway, there are some truly special things happening here. First of all, our quote unquote hero, who is a policeman is so relatable. He's not particularly good at his job. He's not particularly into his job. He's very emotional. Sometimes he's decisive. Sometimes he's indecisive. But it just feels like real life. Secondly, this is the only movie I've seen that I can remember in the last, I don't know, 10 years or more that really reminded me what it was first like to encounter Twin Peaks. This small village 
is set in such beautiful vastness. And there are shots of landscape in this movie that are the most beautiful I've ever seen. I mean, I would put all of this on my wall. I could randomly stop the wailing at almost any point, press print, and have something I'd want on my wall. Third, once you kind of figure out what's happening in the movie and you go back and rewatch it, there were so many little touches, like almost six sense level touches. Uh, a woman who's throwing little rocks and you know what that means until later. A room full of absolutely horrendous crime scene photographs that you don't get the significance of. A beheaded Buddha that only makes sense later. Wilted flowers that like are something from Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. Just all kinds of deliciously evil Easter eggs and little hints and clues being dropped along the way. Oh, and did I mention the zombies? <laughs> crazy scary zombies as well what what is this movie but what elevated it to the best horror movie to me of the decade was the entire ending sequence there's a twist that i vaguely suspected but had no idea was the scale that it was and then our hero the policeman is being tested for his faith and the movie leaves him caught in a circumstance where whatever choice he makes is going to determine the fate of his family. And the stakes are so high. The movie did such a good job of making me want all of this to come out right that he was being given this test. And he had limited information to go on. We, as viewers of the movie, have way more information than he does. We, this isn't like a POV movie. Like we have seen and heard all kinds of things that he is not privy to. And even as the viewer was stocked with all kinds of information that he did not have, I did not know what the right choice to make was. And it's cruel because it's a very binary choice. There's no like ambiguity of, what you know? Do we? What plan do we pick out of ten or whatever? No, this is very black and white. It's it's do one thing or do the other thing, and that's it. And your choice is on a clock, and your choice is going to determine the fate of pretty much everyone you cared about who's left by the end of this movie. And it's drawn out over like a five minute span, and I don't mean drawn out in a bad way. I mean just perfectly extended. And I was so invested with this character and the choice that was going to happen and so rooting for him. I was nervous and sweating. I just didn't know the right thing to do. I know he didn't know the right thing to do. And it was absolutely terrifying. And the entities that he's torn between are also completely sinister. Just, just skin-crawlingly evil. So I don't want to spoil how it all goes down, obviously, but I feel like I could just watch this movie five times in a row and get something amazing from it um, that I didn't catch on the first uh, or second or third pass, etc. every time. I just could not love The Wailing more than I do. So that was the best horror movies of 2010s from the Horror Weekly community, and myself. Hope you enjoyed it. Not going to do best horror movie I saw this week because I rewatched The Wailing for this and I just am not going to defile 
the whaling's memory by talking about anything else. Um, I will have that for you next week. I actually have a really fun one. It's a early eighties slasher that I'd never heard before, but uh, we'll get into that next week, uh, which will be next Wednesday until then. Thank you for listening and have a great horror week.